Hi folks, you're listening to the Long Overdue Abandoned America podcast, and I'm your always behind host, Matthew Christopher. This week, we're going to be talking about a brand new addition to the Abandoned America website, the Gold Street Generating Station in Baltimore. If you want to see the set of photos I took in Gold Street, I just added them to the Abandoned America website so you can head on over there. The link is in the show description too, so you don't even have to spend any time looking for it. The transcript of the essay portion of the show is also there. Before we go further, I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my Patreon subscribers, in particular Brian M, for supporting my work. I literally could not do this without you. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon for updates, historical photos, monthly giveaways, advanced access to galleries and podcasts, and a bunch of other stuff, check the show description or show notes, or just visit patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. It's been a bit since my last episode on Forest Haven, which honestly was pretty upsetting even for me, and I've had a lot of life stuff going on, which I'll talk about a little more at the end of the episode if you're interested. The short version for the absence is that I just really needed a break. I put tons of pressure on myself to finish these things and reach some arbitrary and vague internal quality standard that I never feel like I hit, which leads me to constantly feel stressed and burned out, and that's just not the right mindset or energy to bring to a podcast. The upside is that it's given me some extra time to put into researching, writing, and photo editing, so I added the new Gold Street Gallery and Write-Up, which we're about to get into, the Frankfurt Arsenal Gallery and Write-Up should be going up on my Patreon by the time I post this, and I also added a gallery and short write-up on the Bud Factory on my website and Patreon, too. When I'm researching and writing these things, I'm always wondering to myself, what makes this place interesting to someone who's never heard of it? Why would someone in, let's say, Seattle care about an abandoned power plant in Baltimore? One of the things I enjoy most about reading about these places is I never have any idea where the story is going to go or what I'm going to learn about when I start looking into the old newspapers on them. In this one, for example, I uncovered a story of what seems like an unsolved murder on the power plant property, found a tie-in to the Battle of Baltimore in 1814, went on a tangent about a pretty amazing but obscure inventor who it seems like nobody today's even heard of, and went down a research rabbit hole into the history of the public utility wars of the late 1800s and early 1900s. If any of that sounds interesting to you, you're in the right place because that's what we're about to go into, plus a lot more. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Photographing the Gould Street Generating Station in March of 2020 seems like a lifetime ago. It was the last place I visited before COVID sideswiped my life and career, and everyone else's, and thus one of my last days of comparative normalcy in the before times, though of course I didn't know it then. My visit was also during the last days of the power plant's existence, as it had been purchased by Greenspring Realty Partners Incorporated from Exelon for $3.25 million only a few months earlier in December 2019, and demolition of the original 1905 section of the plant would begin in October 2020. I had passed the power plant many times, gazing wistfully at it from Interstate 95 during various trips through Baltimore's Port Covington district. A friend had kindly arranged access through the developers, and as usual I was both excited and a bit anxious that something would go sideways before I got to photograph the interior. Thankfully, it did not. We met on site with one of the developers, who was friendly and upbeat about plans for the property. The doors were open, and we were left on our own for several hours. 
We started in the modern edition, built in 1927 and still used periodically until 2019, and were struck by how clean and untouched the building felt. Later in the day, we moved on to the original powerhouses built in 1905, and the difference was stark. While they were thankfully devoid of graffiti and vandalism, it was clear that they had been out of operation for decades. It was the best kind of site visit, free of stress, plenty of time to work, and minimal interference. The site of Gold Street Power Plant has a fairly rich history, as it's roughly located on the former site of Fort Babcock, and prior to the start of demolition even had a plaque and cannon on the property commemorating the fort's significance in the War of 1812. Fort Babcock is described as an earthen half-elliptical shore battery with six cannons that, in conjunction with the nearby Fort McHenry, Fort Lookout, and Fort Covington, was instrumental in repelling the British naval assault in the 1914 Battle of Baltimore. Though the victory was immortalized in Francis Scott Key's lyrics for the Star-Spangled Banner, Fort Covington and Babcock were mostly forgotten and in ruins by the mid-1950s. At some point in the late 1800s, the parcel of land that the Gould Street Generating Station would occupy came under the ownership of the Baltimore Brick Company, possibly in its 1899 acquisition of several competing brick companies. They in turn sold the 6.4-acre waterfront property to the Maryland Telephone and Telegraph Company for $45,000, and construction of the Gould Street Generating Station, then known as the Gould Street Powerhouse, began in 1904. The construction of the power plant was itself an act of war of sorts, though not between nations, but rather companies. Baltimore was the first American city to begin replacing their system of whale oil lamps with gas street lamps in 1817, although technically Newport, Rhode Island beat them by a few months to the installation of the first gas-powered streetlight. The Gaslight Company of Baltimore, founded in 1816, was the first gas utility in the United States. The Gaslight Company had the monopoly as the sole provider of the city's gas supply until after the Civil War, when competitors divided the city and costly price wars ensued. The 1880 merger between those companies formed the Consolidated Gas Company of Baltimore City, and while electric power was still considered experimental, it would soon become apparent that Edison's incandescent light bulb was the future of lighting. The first electric light franchise in Baltimore was granted to the Brush Electric Light Company in 1881, but their main powerhouse was destroyed by a massive fire in 1893, an event I've been able to find frustratingly little information about despite being briefly referenced as a major event in several newspaper articles. As with the city's gas supply, a constellation of confusingly named competing electricity providers appeared and vanished in mergers but all were consolidated into the United Electric Light and Power Company in 1899. This company would then merge with the Consolidated Gas Company in 1906 to form the Consolidated Electric Light and Power Company of Baltimore. Another key event that would lead to the construction of the Gould Street Powerhouse was the Great Baltimore Fire of 1904, which destroyed over 1,500 buildings and severely damaged approximately 1,000 more causing over $150 million of destruction, which would be more than $5 billion today. During the fire, consolidated employees raced to keep gas mains from exploding. There was much rebuilding to do in the aftermath, and a lot of money to potentially be made doing so. This was the moment that the Maryland Telephone and Telegraph Company decided to throw their hat in the ring. 
As with many industries, including the power companies and railroads, the competition to provide telephone services to an ever-expanding base of customers had been fierce, and the late 1800s and early 1900s were marked with a frankly bewildering series of new companies and subsequent consolidations and mergers that are more difficult to untangle than a long-forgotten jumble of Christmas tree lights. The Maryland Telephone and Telegraph Company had emerged on top of the heap and boasted 9,000 Baltimore subscribers in 1904. Their decision to branch out into light and power was more of a natural progression than it might seem. They had already installed phone lines across the city that could also carry electrical wires. With the backing of Maryland Telephone and Telegraph Company's officers, the Baltimore Electric Power Company was incorporated and the Gould Street Powerhouse was to be their flagship plant. Funding was provided by George R. Webb, who had started as a clerk in the Baltimore and Ohio Rail Company, spearheaded a series of consolidations, and wound up as president of the United Railways and Electric Company. Webb's name is forgotten today, despite some pretty incredible accomplishments. Though it's not particularly relevant to Gold Street, Webb was also an inventor. He would develop arguably the first public address system called the Magnaphone, which was installed at Grand Central Station in New York City on riverboats and on ships in the U.S. Navy. He also created a music-by-phone service in 1908 that functioned as an early sort of pay-per-listen service allowing subscribers to play news and popular phonographs via dedicated speakers roughly two decades before most U.S. households had radios. Webb also invented a system to synchronize sound with film and was showing talking motion pictures in 1912, a full 15 years before the jazz singer debuted. Had World War I not occurred, which stifled Webb's efforts to gain worldwide implementation of his inventions, and had Webb not died shortly thereafter from a heart attack in 1919, it's possible that he might be known as one of the great American inventors rather than an obscure footnote. This is in addition to his work laying the foundation for telephone service to cities like Baltimore and Pittsburgh. But I digress. The Gold Street Powerhouse was estimated to cost $2 million to build and would be thoroughly modern and fireproof. It was steel concrete construction with curtain walls of brick laid in cement and utilized Westinghouse steam turbines and boilers from the Sterling Boiler Company of Chicago. The contractor was John Waters, who sadly is unrelated to the famed Baltimore film director. The power station was located so that it could receive coal by rail or water. When Gould Street opened with a production capacity of approximately 8,000 horsepower in 1905, it must have been a somewhat terrifying development for Consolidated, who started construction of their own flagship Westport Generating Station that same year and began operations there in 1906. As a side note, I've photographed the abandoned Westport Generating Station, too. A short but fierce price war took place which saw Baltimore Electric Power Company losing money from selling electrical service for less than the cost to produce it in hopes of securing their position. This led to a failure to pay their bonds, and they were consolidated, by consolidated, in 1907 or 1908. As the city's electrical demand could be carried solely by Westport, Gold Street was used as a backup during periods of peak demand. B&O Railroad sought unsuccessfully to lease the plant in 1909, and it was noted that it was in use in 1913 despite most city residents thinking it had been mothballed. That same year, a night watchman named Joseph Wallace, who had interrupted an attempted robbery of a safe at the plant, was found riddled with bullets in a swampy area adjoining the Gold Street property 
presumably in retaliation for his testimony against the would-be robber. The most incredible part of this story to me was that Wallace had been shot five times, three times in the abdomen and twice in the back of the head, and employees even reported seeing the assailant running away. Yet police were initially convinced that Wallace had somehow committed suicide. Gould Street's function over the next decade or so is ambiguous. One source cited in the brief Wikipedia entry states that the generators and turbines were shipped to a silver mine in Mexico, but I've been unable to find any direct newspaper sources confirming this. During my visit, the equipment seemed intact and the building bore no traces of having been ripped open to remove anything, although I could certainly be mistaken. In 1923, there was a scuffle over the land when Western Maryland Railway Company attempted to get right-of-way across the property, and the Port Commission considered condemning the Gold Street site to resolve the dispute, which would imply that the plan had been out of use for some time. Consolidated had been experiencing enormous growth as more homes were electrified and industrial use increased, and argued that they needed the site for a new power plant. This included a 25-foot strip of land on Western Maryland Railway Company's property that, in 1926, Consolidated argued should be condemned. As there's no record I can find of whether either company's attempts were successful, it's not clear whether Consolidated was trying to recover land they lost or just trying to smack the railway back for trying to take their property via condemnation in the first place. Either way, it reeks of a certain vindictiveness that likely greatly pleased Consolidated executives when it was set in motion. Whatever the case may be, working on the new addition to Gold Street began in 1925 with the demolition of two 200-foot chimneys, each weighing 700 tons, and an iron coal elevator. The Baltimore Sun article about the demolition marvels at the precise use of dynamite to bring down the structures which also hurled debris into a nearby crowd of spectators. Thankfully, none were injured. The new plant cost an estimated $4 million to build and had an output of 213,000 horsepower, more than all of Consolidated's plants in 1910 combined. It opened in 1927 crowned with two brand new smokestacks that would serve as a navigation marker for ship captains in the decades to come. The new turbines used pulverized coal and were considered engineering marvels. Consolidated rebranded as Baltimore Gas and Electric, or BGE, in 1955, and to meet ever-increasing demand, they built Maryland's first nuclear power plant, a two-unit facility in Calvert Cliffs whose reactors went online in 1975 and 1977. As a result, Two of the three units at Gould Street were decommissioned, but Unit 3 continued to operate sporadically for peak summer demand and energy shortages. In 1996, the smokestacks on Unit 1 and 2 were removed and scrapped, hoisted off in 35,000-pound sections by a 300-foot crane. Exelon acquired BGE's parent company, Constellation Energy Group, in 2012 and continued periodic use of Unit 3 until June 1, 2019, when the entire plant was closed for good and sold six months later to Greenspring Realty Partners, Inc. Currently, the property is controlled by the Port Covington Development Team, later rebranded as Baltimore Peninsula, which, according to SouthBmore.com, consists of lead investors Sagamore Ventures and Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group and lead developer Weller Development Company. Though there are no current indications what future plans for the Gold Street property are, Baltimore Peninsula's projects and the immediate surroundings suggest a mixture of residential, retail, and office use. 
A short walk nearby will take you by the Sagamore Spirit Distillery, the Rye House, which is an apartment complex and Rye Markets, a food hall and shopping center, and the new Under Armour headquarters, which has an accompanying track and field facility. It's clear that Baltimore Peninsula wants to make a hip new neighborhood where many of the city's defunct waterfront industries used to be, and it's a safe bet that the Gold Street Generating Station property will factor into that. Anyone who knows me knows that I will always favor adaptive reuse of historic buildings, and I do think that the Gold Street Generating Station would have made a terrific centerpiece property had it been rehabilitated through an inspired project, like the one that's nearing completion at Philadelphia's former Delaware River Generating Station. The Gold Street buildings that were demolished were, in my opinion, easily the most handsome of the ones on the property, and I'm sad to see them go. Given my way, I would have preferred to see the old waterfront brought to life as part of the new. Having said that, it's hard to argue that the property Gold Street Generating Station sits on serves the community better as the site of a derelict, polluted relic of coal-fired power production than the mixture of homes and businesses that are popping up around it. One day, the remnants of the industries from the late 19th and 20th centuries that created our urban centers will be nothing but fading memories. And while I'll always hope that more can be integrated into our contemporary lives, their legacy in terms of land use and environmental impact is likely best left behind. There's nothing quite like seeing the scale and might of a grand old power plant like Gold Street firsthand, though. That much is for sure. There's something awe-inspiring and humbling about being in a massive turbine hall that once cranked out enough energy to fuel an entire city, and seeing the long-forgotten guts of an engineering marvel that was once the pride of the town that built it. I'd go back to Gold Street Generating Station in a heartbeat if I could, just to walk through the maze of boilers and furnaces and pipes without the pressure of taking photos. I'd sit in the silence of the turbine hall and watch the way the light changes as it filters through the grimy windows at different times of day, just appreciating the plant as it was after its utility ceased to define it. It's in conditions like those that the billions of lost seconds throughout the course of a century seem so close that you feel like you might be able to pierce through the veil of the present and bathe in them, unshackled by time or place. There's a kind of magic to it that I've never really felt able to condense into words, but it's the defining factor that has driven the many years I've spent hunting down abandoned places. Maybe you could call it a sort of annihilation or obliteration, a loss of self. Maybe you could call it peace. Okay, that does it for the episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and again, head on over to the Abandoned America website if you'd like to see the photographs from my visit to Gold Street in 2020. It was a really neat set of buildings. If you did enjoy the episode, here's the obligatory reminder to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're on, leave a positive review if you're on Apple Podcasts, and of course, if you really want to help keep it going, you can join the Patreon. The link's in the description. I'd like to give a quick thank you to current subscribers on Patreon, with special thanks to Peter E., Jennifer D., Terry G., Donna B., L. M., Brian M., and Steve M., the music for this episode was by Scott Buckley and Ashot Danielian. I'll have links in the show notes. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to my friend Scott C for setting this whole thing up. Thanks, Scott. You rock. I said at the top of the episode I'd go into the delay between episodes before, and now that we're here, I feel a bit weird about it. But basically, as I've said, I really want to do an amazing job on these episodes, and Forest Haven was one in particular I really felt needed to be exceptional. 
The problem is that I don't really have any way of measuring what an amazing job is, and I never really feel like I do one. So I get discouraged pretty easily, and then I get super anxious about completing more projects because I feel like everyone else is going to be as hard on them as I am. Add to that a pretty bad case of imposter syndrome, and I can get really upset and stressed, all based on garbage floating around my head that makes me feel like I've spectacularly failed projects before I even begin them. It's also been a super stressful year in general. We moved from Philadelphia to upstate New York early last year for a new job my wife took in what turned out to be, in my estimation, a pretty toxic environment. So we've been on edge for months over that. The good news is that she recently took a position at an organization that seems like a much better fit for her and a really positive work environment. But then her car died, so now we have to worry about that. It's just been a lot. This kind of drawn-out, relentless grind where as soon as you deal with one major problem, another one takes its place. I'm not trying to get anyone's pity here. I generally assume people following my work care about that, not whatever is going on with me as a human, so I tend to not talk about it. But anxiety and chronic depression really have been lifelong issues for me, and they definitely do affect my work. In fact, I credit them with being one of the main reasons I visit abandoned buildings to begin with. I wish I had some tidy bow to tie on this. I feel like you're supposed to give audiences closure by saying, but now things are terrific and we've got everything under control, but we don't. We'll get the car thing sorted out, but boy would I love to have a few months that are smooth sailing. I guess if there's a point to this segment or any of this, it's so you know why I needed a break, maybe also so you know me better as a person who takes the photos and creates the podcast, if that matters. And perhaps most importantly, if you like what I do and you're someone out there who is working on your own creative projects and kicking yourself constantly because they never seem to be as good as you want them to be, I hope you know that you're not alone there. And that I think it's really a common problem with people who care deeply about what they do. In the end, even if it terrifies you a bit, even if you're not sure if it's going to be any good and are afraid it won't, you have to do whatever your equivalent is of recording the next episode and moving on to the next project. If you stop, that inner critic wins and the people who care about you and what you do lose. So that's what I'm doing today, wrapping up the episode and getting it done and hoping that you folks who are listening get something out of it, whether that's learning something new or just being entertained for a bit. Thanks for being here to share my work with. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you've been listening to Abandoned America. I'd also like to give a big thanks to my friend Scott C. for setting this whole thing up. You rock, Scott. 